When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is imposter syndrome? How do you know if you've got it? And how do you overcome those thoughts? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. Let's talk imposter syndrome. This is one of those things where you might have some thoughts swirling in your head and you think you're the only one with those thoughts, but actually it's a real thing. Let me explain. You might feel concerned that people doubt your abilities and accomplishments or that you might not be deserving of your success. By definition, you might feel like an imposter. Well, that's one thing. But if that thought goes far enough, you might actually be dealing with something more, something called imposter syndrome. That term was coined in 1978 by doctors Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes after they conducted a study on the behaviors of high-achieving women and observed immense feelings of self-doubt amongst the test group. Putting a label on these intrusive thoughts is said to have helped countless people to feel less alone and begin to find ways to combat these feelings. So who is most impacted by feelings of imposter syndrome? What triggers those thoughts? And how does imposter syndrome affect productivity? There are a lot of questions to answer about this topic, and you're in luck because my guest, Dr. Valerie Young, is the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute and is considered to be, quote, the world's foremost expert on the matter, and she is here to explain. Valerie, how's it going? It is going great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, this is so interesting because I-, I can't speak for everyone, but I feel like it seems a little common to question, like, wow, do I deserve to be here? I feel like an imposter. So at what point does that thought turn into a syndrome? Oh, that's a great question, because I think you're absolutely right. It's really kind of morphed into a catch-all for any, I think, normal, legitimate anxiety going into a job interview or a big client meeting or making a presentation. To me, the, the distinction is, Abby, imposter phenomenon, as it was originally coined by two psychologists in 1978, can describes this experience where we legitimately don't feel as, as intelligent, capable, competent, qualified, talented as everyone thinks we are. And, and we have these feelings despite concrete evidence of our past accomplishments and abilities, whether that's good grades in school or you know a series of promotions or awards or whatever that might be. And we're left, therefore, with this feeling that we are going to be, at some point, found out. Found out. So what? how many times does this have to happen for someone to go, all right, I haven't been found out yet? Does it just last forever or do you ever overcome imposter syndrome? Yeah, there's certainly some people who overcome it. And then you have people like Tom Hanks or Viola Davis, right, who, who obviously are competent, right? They, they've won these Oscars and they're talking about their own imposter feelings. 
I think some people do overcome it. There, there's kind of degrees, really. You can you can have it on a you know kind of a slight you know case, if you will, where you every so often you have this little feeling, little inkling, or it can be kind of moderate. And then there are people for whom they, these feelings are truly intense, and it can lead mm -hmm. to you know a depression or anxiety and all kinds of behavioral kind of consequences. I think you can learn how to, if not quote unquote, you know, cure it. Like my goal is not for somebody to never feel like an imposter again. If that happens, that's great. What I'm trying to give people is kind of information, insight, and tools. So when they have a normal imposter moment, they can talk themselves down more quickly. Okay, that makes sense. I, I looked at a study in 2019 by BYU, and it revealed that one in five college students experience imposter syndrome in their undergraduate years. Is this more common uh, among young people just because they haven't necessarily had all of the education or the experience yet as maybe someone that's maybe in their 50s? You're right. It is very common amongst um, young, not just young people, but in the case you cite, Abby, it's students. And if they were looking at doctoral students or medical students, those numbers would be much higher. Mm. It would be 50 to 80 percent um, of people having these feelings, which to me makes sense, because when you were a student, you were in a situation where your knowledge and intellect is literally being tested day in and day out and graded at the same time. So it makes perfect sense to me that students would have these feelings, especially if they're, for example, in, in a STEM field. There's fewer women, people of color in a STEM field. Or let's say you're the first generation in your family to go to college, and now you're at this very elite university, you know, that can also be a, a compounding factor that triggers imposter feelings. Okay. So you're saying that a big factor in this is kind of seeing that maybe you're performing at a higher level than you've witnessed in the past, whether it's your family, whether it's um, you're of a different race or a different gender, you're comparing yourself to other people that may not, you may not have seen achieve the same kind of things because it just wasn't around. Yeah, that could absolutely be the potential. And, and I think along with that, whenever you belong to any group for whom there are stereotypes about competence or intelligence, you're going to be more susceptible. So for example, a question I often ask my audiences is, is how many of you have ever been the youngest person in a in an achievement arena, you know, at work or school and felt like you were being underestimated because you were young. And, and we, mm. we all have felt that at one point or another. And then I'll say, well, how many of you have been on the other end of that where you perhaps are the oldest person there and you feel underestimated? And when I ask that question to Facebook employees, the 30 year olds raise their hand because at Facebook, 35, they're like, hey, what do they know? Right. <laughs> they're old. It, it, it is a valid question. And, uh, you know, I it kind of goes both ways. Right. You, you need to almost question yourself to an extent, because if you go into a situation so overconfident, like, oh, I'm crushing this, everyone should praise me, obviously, you're, you probably won't achieve as high as you could if you say, all right, I, I do have a lot of work to do. So how do you know when it's imposter syndrome and when it's just you being hard on yourself and trying to achieve more greatness? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, because I think very often we conflate confidence and competence. Mm -hmm. You know, we feel like if I was really competent, I'd feel confident 24 seven. And no, you wouldn't. Right. And 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 also, you know, the, the estimate that's thrown around so often, Abby, is that up to 70 percent of people have these feelings at one time or another. Some studies find it, you know, in, in the 80s. But the, the, the point is, 
the majority of us have had these feelings at one time. So my question is like, what's up with the other 30? (laughs) (laughs) Why why aren't we studying them? (laughs) Now, some portion is that person you kind of alluded to, right? Who who goes in very overconfident sometimes uh, to the point of being arrogant. Uh, You know, the proverbial smartest guy in the room who, who may or may not be the most competent person in the room, but they think that they are. And, and none of us are looking to be that that person, right? It, to me, it's about striking. It's not the choice between being an arrogant jerk or feeling like an imposter. I think there's a it's a false choice. There's a third option, which is to become what I call a humble realist. Somebody who is genuinely humble, but they've never had imposter feelings. Huh. That, that, okay, so that brings up another question then. So let's say you do have imposter syndrome. You had mentioned that that can lead to feelings of depression um, or other psychological things. How do you overcome imposter syndrome? That's a great question. I think there's a few things we can do. The first one is to normalize imposter feelings by, by talking about it. You know, for a lot of people, just finding out wait a minute, there's a name for this and other people feel that way too, can be tremendously liberating. I also think we can normalize by doing less psychologizing and more contextualizing Hmm. by recognizing, for example, you know, you're a student, of course you feel like an imposter, right? You're here to learn. You're not going to know everything. I had a student at Stanford, a graduate student say, I feel like I should already know what I came here to learn. Right. So he's coming in with those expectations. People in creative fields are more susceptible because they're being judged by their last performance, by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic. People in STEM fields, like rapidly changing uh, information dense fields, certain organizational cultures can fuel self-doubt as well. So if you can kind of step back and look at like the, whether it's family, whether it's societal, occupational, situational, you know, what what's the external reality that might lead me to have these imposter feelings? So that when you have a normal imposter moment, you can kind of hit that pause button, zoom out, get the view from 20,000 feet and, and, and flip the narrative to not how could I feel like an imposter, but how could I not? Mm. The thing I think we can do, and it goes back to humble realists, you know, they're no more intelligent, capable, competent than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where we might have an imposter moment, they're thinking different thoughts. But, but it's not like just a pep talk, right? You got this and you could do it. They think differently about what it means to be competent. They have a realistic understanding of competence to include not only understanding their gifts and their talents, but their limitations. They know they can't do everything and they're fine with that. That's why they delegate or hire people or go ask for help or ask questions in a meeting because they know they can't know everything. And they have a healthy response to failure mistakes, setbacks, constructive criticism, which let's face it, for folks who feel like imposters, even constructive criticism feels like, you know, it just, just wounds us deeply. It's right? like it's validating like almost your Absolutely. Your I must, yeah. yeah. You know, I was speaking at NASA and this engineer, she said she had a performance review and her boss told her like five areas where she was outstanding. And she said, is there any place I can improve? I said, great, that's exactly what you should be doing. And she said, yeah, but then he criticized me and I was depressed for weeks. Mm. I said, do you mind if I ask what the criticism was? And she said, yeah, he told me I could have delegated more on my last project. Oh, that's it. I said, that that wasn't criticism. (laughs) That (laughs) was information. He said you're operating on a higher level. So we need to develop a, a healthy relationship with these things where we see constructive feedback as a gift, where we seek it out because we want to continually get better and also kind of reframe 
fear and to normalize fear and self-doubt. You know, the opposite of imposter isn't feeling confident 24-7. It's realizing you're going to have moments of fear. You're going to have moments of anxiety, and that's okay. I like that you phrase it that way. The opposite of imposter isn't feeling confident 24-7. It's more about your response to failure and criticism. Absolutely. And you can be crushingly disappointed if you don't get the job or, you, you know, your your company doesn't earn the prof- profits you expected in year one or whatever that might be. You can be crushingly disappointed. But as long as you gave it your best shot, you know, there's no shame. You know, I often use the analogy of sports. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. The losing team is crying on the bench, but they don't hang up their uniform and go home. They go watch the game tape. They get more coaching. They practice and they say, we'll get them next time. So it's about resilience. Mm. Absolutely. I love sports analogies, by the way. <laughs> uh, but because because that losing team, they're never going to get better if they're constantly winning. The team that always is winning, of course, they might maintain that elite status, but you have to lose sometimes to get better because you, that's when you learn. When you face yeah. adversity, that's when you learn. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm curious about this. So I went to college in Los Angeles. I went to USC. And um, I, I have some friends, I think just by nature of being in LA and looking around, it kind of goes back to your point about, you know, if you see people around you similar, that that type of thing. Um, I'm curious about the psychological perspective in examining the human brain and how it operates. There are people that I know from LA who have body dysmorphia. They think they look a different way than they actually do. Is there any connection between that and imposter syndrome, given that you're not really seeing yourself in an accurate way? I'm not aware of any brain research. And yes, we're looking at ourselves perhaps in a not fully accurate way. But you know what's interesting, Abby? When I, towards the end of my talks, I, I basically say to people that there was a study done at Wake Forest University, and they took a group of students who tested high for imposter feelings. And they said, How do you think you're going to do on this upcoming exam? And they, when they told them they were going to not show the results to anyone, then they felt pretty confident. But when they told them they were going to share the results, they lowered their expectations for how ah. well they would do. The researchers dubbed them phony imposters. I respectfully disagree. I, would, I think what they really discovered is the flip side of imposter syndrome. And that is that deep down, we know we can achieve just about anything we set our mind to. I mean, not, not anything. I'm not going to play for the NBA clearly right? <laughs> you never know but we know we have the capacity to achieve the majority of the goals we set for ourselves in life it's just that debris of imposter thinking about competence failure mistakes and criticism and fear that's what gets in our way so truly deep down we do know we're no imposter so that's why i always tell people if people want to stop feeling like an imposter but that's not how it works feelings are the last to change the only way to stop Feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. How do you stop that thinking? It's going to go back to kind of hitting that pause button, right? Mm-hmm. The next time you have a normal imposter moment, take just take a beat and try to become consciously aware of 
what is the conversation going on in my head? And then how would somebody who is humble, but have never felt like an imposter, how would they reframe that? How would they think differently about that, that, that humble realist? I'll give you another sports analogy. I, I was, I don't do a ton of coaching, but I was coaching this executive, very senior guy. He was there at the start of the company. It's now like a $50 million, uh, million dollar company. And he knows he's a star. He's the guy when they have to you know, close a big deal, they fly him off to you know, San Francisco to close the big deal. He knows he's a star, but he also feels like an imposter because they're bringing in all these young kids with their MBAs and their you know, standard operating procedures and their spreadsheets. And he's a big picture strategy guy. So I said to him, John, you're a star, right? He says, yeah. I said, so it sounds like you're expecting yourself to be the star pitcher the star batter, the star base runner, the star, you know, outfielder, catcher. And, and he looked at me and he said, oh my God, I'm a sports guy. I just got it. <laughs> he was, had this exaggerated notion of what it meant to be competent to include being at the top of his game, excelling in, in multiple areas simultaneously. Right, right. This has probably been a feeling, I, I probably don't know this, I'm not in people's heads, but I could assume that this has been a feeling for years and years. I mean, there have been CEOs, you even go back in the course of history, people had to do things at such a top level in order to just basically survive. So when did imposter syndrome come into the conversation? How was it discovered? You know, it, it's often credited to Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. They were at Georgia State University. Clance was a psychology professor and a clinical psychologist, and Suzanne Imes was a clinical psychologist. And they observed it in uh, the people they were working with in one-on-one -on -one therapy. These were students, mostly students, some faculty and some professionals, as well as in kind of personal growth, you know, groups that they were they were running. But interestingly, I saw it come up a few years earlier, like in 68, in a paper from a conference on uh, Chinese American women feeling like intellectual frauds. And even though they were successful, feeling like, yeah, but they were just lucky, or it's only because I worked hard. And inherent in that notion, it's only because I worked hard, is the false belief that if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. Right. This belief that for everyone else, it's easy, but because I'm not as, quote unquote, smart, I have to work harder. So that's imposter so syndrome. It's it's part of that false thinking about what it means to be competent. Oh. And if that's the standard I hold myself to, that everything is going to be about picking things up quickly and easily and just hitting the ground running, I'm always going to feel like I'm less competent than other people because we look at people doing amazing things and we think, oh, it looks so easy. We don't realize the number of years it took for them to get good at their craft. Yeah, they're also working every day. Absolutely. But some people get very discouraged if they don't just sit down and write a bestseller the first time out, you know, or they get one rejection letter or their first presentation isn't very good. Well, guess what? It's probably not going to be very good. <laughs> right. You know, maybe your 50th will be excellent, but keep working at it and get better and better. Yeah, I... It's true. I mean, if you look at someone and I, I'm blessed to work with so many intelligent people and you watch and you're like, whoa, I mean, they really nail it every single time. But the reality is, is they worked really hard. They studied. They watched the news day in, day out. And um, so I, I am curious, given kind of what you just said, how does imposter syndrome affect 
uh, being productive. I mean, is it productive? Like, is there some weird way that being, you know, thinking you're an imposter is productive because you're telling yourself, all right, I do need to work harder. It's not going to come naturally to me. You know, I, I, I'm not in the imposter syndrome is a good thing camp. And I know that's a narrative that's out there right now, Abby, um, you know, that it, it keeps us humble. It, motivates us to work harder. And I, I don't want my motivation to work hard to come from trying to outrun the no talent police. Mm. I think it's possible to to be that humble realist and still realize I have to work hard at something. Or sometimes I say, well, it means you're learning. So are you saying that you, in order to learn, you have to feel like an imposter? I don't think we do. I think we need to change uh, the, the narrative and create a third lane, which is how do we help people become a humble realist? Because the research also shows this idea of it motivates us to work harder is less effective with women, that women are more likely to kind of pull back. Why do you think that is? Well, because I think we take the failure as kind of evidence that, well, I guess I'm really not that good. And maybe it's socialization, you know, maybe boys grew up being pushed to, okay, you, 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 you fell down, get up and try it again. And maybe we got some messages like, oh, that's okay. You know, if it's too hard, you don't have to worry about it. You know, I'm not sure exactly, um, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, certainly I'm generalizing, right? You can't say all men do this and all women do that. Um, but as a rule, and I think the other reason is women are already working pretty darn hard. I don't think, I don't think we're <laughs> yes, looking for right? How much harder can we work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it kind of goes back to your point before that you you want to normalize failure, too. I mean, it's it's okay to fail. If you continuously fail, then you need to learn from that and say, all right, why do I keep failing? But you can't let it handicap you to the point where you're so fearful of failing that you don't even try. Absolutely. And it's about, you know, when you're a humble realist, you recognize you have the right to have an off day once in a while. Yeah. Like not all the time. To your point, Abby, if you're having an off day every day, you're either in the wrong job or there's a training issue going on. <laughs> right. If you knew you had the right to have an off day, to not understand, like raise your hand in a meeting and say, excuse me, I'm not following, to ask for help or to struggle to master something or learn something, there'd be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Right. Um, I, I love that because I truly believe one of the biggest values that people have, I, I grew up um, with a, a family that just everyone in my family is so humble. And I love that that's a value that's been put at the forefront. And there's a difference between being humble, but still being confident enough, like kind of downplaying what you're doing, but also knowing that you're not the best in the room and you can achieve things if you work at it. Um, I, it it's, it's a fascinating thing. And that's where I think people, when you bring up, um, you know, a humble realist, and then you have an imposter syndrome person, like those are very different things. And it, it is mm -hmm. about the framing that you tell yourself and that you kind of push forward uh, under that context. Um, what do you what do you think just from your observations are the wider implications of imposter syndrome on well being? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, on a personal level, it can go a couple of ways, Abby. For some people, how they respond, because you're trying to manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out and avoid being found out. So you might do something like kind of fly under the radar. So you don't speak up in meetings. You don't go for more challenging opportunities or assignments. You don't start your business or try to get your art into a gallery. You know, the sense if I can keep my head down and play small, 
it's safer there and I won't fail. I won't be disappointed and I won't be found out. For somebody else, it might be the other extreme, like overworking, overpreparing for everything they do. But again, out of this sense of, I mean, obviously we all have to work hard. That's not what I'm describing. It's This is the person who says, the only reason I'm successful is I have to work harder than other people to kind of cover up for my supposed ineptness. It could turn into chronic procrastination. There are people who self-sabotage their success. It could be alcohol or substance abuse. It could be showing up late to a job interview or an important meeting or job hopping. So it has a lot of impact on the individual, but also on their organization. You know, all of those things have costs and consequences on a, on, on the organizational level as well. So I, I don't see this as like an interesting self-help topic. I see it as a bottom line issue in, mm. in companies, which is why we work with so many major corporations and universities. We'll be right back after this. Has this, I kind of asked this question before, but I want to, I want to take a different route with it. Um, If you look over the course of time, obviously right now we live in a very different world than the world of the 1500s, the 1600s, the the jobs look different. Um, You know, you might've been fighting disease. Um, Now we're fighting other things and uh, still fighting disease, obviously, but you know, there's an added pressure of social media, things like that. Do you think that imposter syndrome has become more of a phenomenon or has it always been prevalent? I have to believe that two things, kind of the pace of organizational life has quickened substantially so that we're we're all operating in this state of perpetual overwhelm, um, you know, and, and you add, I mean, you said social media. So there you have this huge culture of comparison where it seems like everyone is living their best life simultaneously, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there there's that. But I just think that the, the, the pace of, of work and change it's like no human could ever keep up. And yet we feel like we should. If I was really competent, I would be able to keep up in everything in, in my field. And guess what? No, you wouldn't. Right? You just It's like you do the very best that you can, but no human on the planet could ever keep up with, with all the, the changes. I mean, if you're in technology, forget it. You like do the best you can, but six months later, everything's going to be different anyway. Right, right. Do you think that any part of this is... Uh, brain chemistry, if it's inherited. I mean, w- the the broader context of mental health and all the different types of things that you can struggle with. Of course, um, circumstance has an effect on how you may be feeling, your outside surroundings, your upbringing, things like that. Um, but then part of it is might be, you know, the way you were born and your brain chemistry. Do you think that this is more that or to the point that you're saying before what you're surrounded with growing up and, you know, your upbringing? You know, I don't think it's either or, Abby. I think certainly for some people who might be, for whatever reason, predisposed to anxiety or depression, they're going to be more susceptible to mm. to imposter feelings, you know, to have that kind of creep in. Um, but I don't think it's kind of something that's kind of lodged, you know, in, in the brain. Uh, but certainly, or if you have a greater kind of sensitivity to the world, um, then it might be more more of a factor, but I don't think okay. the solution, you know, the, so there you want to get some help with depression and you want to get some help with, with anxiety and address imposter syndrome kind of 
on a parallel track with that. Okay. So uh, by that, do you mean that I think about OCD and I'm not a therapist, so I don't know a lot about these things. Um, but you know, I know that OCD is a form of anxiety, like extreme anxiety is imposter syndrome, a form of anxiety or depression, or are they completely different? Um, I think they're different. They, they can, you know, they can kind of coexist. Um, but I do think they're different. And, and let me just add, I'm not a psychologist. So I tend to, you know, I, I actually was asked to contribute a book that's being uh, published by the APA, American Psychological Association. I'm the only non-psychologist and the only non-academic. And, and I And I said, I have concerns that a lot of academics and psychologists kind of paint this as, you know, very having to do with, you know, depression and high levels of anxiety. And it's like, I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people. And when I look out at my audiences, I do see, you know, relatively well-adjusted people who also have imposter feelings. Are there people there who've come up and talked to me or it's clear they're also struggling with anxiety and depression? Absolutely. And I always encourage them to, to seek some uh, mental health counseling and something that can help with that simultaneously. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Are there different types of imposters? Um, not so many different types of imposters, but I think different orientations to how people with imposter syndrome think about what it means to be competent. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, again, that the psychological literature, the research out of academia really talks specifically about having a high tendency towards perfectionism. But but I found over the years, Abby, that not everybody in my audience resonates as a perfectionist. And I've I've found there's other ways that they think about competence, that they measure their competence. So there's the person I call the expert. So think of that person as the knowledge version of the perfectionist. So for them, what's most important is not so much the quality of their work. And it's not that that's not important, but is what's paramount to them is the quantity of knowledge and information that they know. And they feel like they can never know enough. So there's always one more book to take, one more certification, one more degree to get, this kind of endless pursuit of the end of knowledge. They're like waiting to wake up one day and say, now I'm ready. Like <laughs> now I'm now I'm an expert. Then there's a person I call the natural genius. It doesn't mean they are a genius. doesn't mean they think they're a genius. What it means is, this is the person I was mentioning before, who somehow got it into their head that if they were really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. They expect to just step into a new job or a promotion and kind of hit the ground running on day one. And when they do have to struggle to understand something or master something, then they think it must be them, right? So therefore, I must be an imposter because this is this is hard for me. Mm-hmm. The soloist, as it sounds, this is the person who feels like it only counts if I do it all by myself. If it was a group effort, a team effort, I mean, God forbid, this is the person who would not seek out mentoring or coaching or tutoring. I've met students, even on the high school level, who will not seek tutoring because they don't want their peers to think they're stupid. Ah. So they've got this notion that admitting you need help indicator that you're not as competent as other people or as smart as other people. And then there's the superhuman. And that was the executive I was describing before, who's expecting himself to be this star at, you know, big picture strategy, but also to be in the nitty gritty of the details and the Excel spreadsheets. It could be the person who expects themselves to excel, not just in their work, but also to be the perfect parent, 
a perfect partner. The house looks good. They look great all at the same time. So they <laughs> have these expectations that they should be excelling at a very high level in all the different roles that they play at work or outside of work. So those are the five, the perfectionist, the expert, natural genius, soloist, and the superhuman. That I, I love how you break that down because it just shows that we all have different backgrounds and we can come from different forms of, or I guess, um, levels of intelligence and education and backgrounds. But, but you know, there are a lot of people probably who deal with this. Um, is this something that's diagnosed or is it something that people just go, okay, I think I have that? I think some people just immediately go, oh, wow, that's me. <laughs> I've been dismissing my accomplishments because here's the thing is people go, oh, yeah, but I was just lucky. I had a lucky break or it, it was just, I was in the right time or the right place or, well, it doesn't count because I had a connection or, yeah, they said my podcast was great or my presentation was great. But that's just because they like me as if likability wasn't a valid skill set. Right? <laughs> that's a good I mean, point. All, all, all of those things are, you know, I always point out that we need to rethink imposter syndrome by recognizing that, guess what? Sometimes luck, timing, connections, personality can play a legitimate role in your success or other people's success. It's what you do with that that count. Mm. There are people, you look through the yearbook in any affluent community and you will see kids who had every opportunity. They had amazing connections in their life, but they failed to rise to their full potential. Absolutely. So Carol Burnett met a guy at a party. She was in college. She took a class on acting. They went to some big party and they're like, they did a little skit. This guy came up to her and said, you know, what do you plan to do with your life? And she said, I'd love to go to New York and get into, you know, acting and, and comedy. And he said, well, why aren't you doing it? She said, no, I haven't got any money. He said, I'll give you the money. He said, you just have to not tell anybody. You have to use the money to go to New York and try to break in and you have to pay it forward. She that. was in the right place at the right time, but then, but then she worked her tail off to follow through. Completely, I, I it's it, this is a, a completely different podcast, but there's the whole thing that people are saying, like, oh, the nepo baby, or like, you know, nepotism and things like that. And the reality is, is it, you know, you you get that opportunity, but then you have to honor that opportunity. And kind of same thing. I mean, he said, I'm going to give you money, and she went and crushed it, and and she used that and honored the opportunity. So. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, last question I have for you as we wrap things up. So let's say someone's listening to this podcast and they go, ah, I actually think I have imposter syndrome. What would you tell them? What advice would you give them? And what do you think is the most important thing to know? Um, I would just know that you're in good company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some of the most successful people on the planet, uh, have had these feelings that they're incredibly normal. And I would spend my time and energy really looking at how how am I measuring my competence right now? And is there a way that I can kind of reframe that to, to have a healthy understanding of what it means to be competent? That's where I would really put my energy is to see if I can develop a different relationship with failure and mistakes. And, and here's the thing. You can be crushingly disappointed if you fail. That's okay, but but not ashamed as long as you gave it your best shot. So I would focus on the less on the feeling side and more on how can I change my thinking and then act like somebody who believes the new thoughts. Like you don't, you don't necessarily believe the new thoughts right now, but what if you acted like somebody who did and you did speak up in the next meeting or you did throw your hat into the ring? 
And then over time, let the confidence catch up. So change your thoughts, then your behaviors, then the confidence will come after that. Some excellent advice. Dr. Valerie Young, everyone. Thank you so much, Valerie, for coming on. I really appreciate your time and your insight. And I think you helped a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me. anything from class these are my office hours and here are some top takeaways about imposter syndrome number one according to merriam webster dictionary imposter syndrome is defined as quote a psychological condition that is characterized by persistent doubt concerning one's abilities or accomplishments accompanied by the fear of being exposed as a fraud despite evidence of one's ongoing success Valerie added that we might have that feeling despite our last accomplishments and abilities, and by nature, that can also lead to things like depression and anxiety. Number two, Valerie clarified that the opposite of imposter isn't feeling confident 24-7. It's instead your response to failure and criticism. She suggests to try to become consciously aware of your feelings of doubt and instead practice being a humble realist. And number three, well, then how do you overcome imposter syndrome? Well, Valerie believes if we normalize imposter feelings and talk about them more, we can relieve some of those doubts. She suggests to do less psychologizing and more contextualizing. For example, if you're a student, you might want to just realize that it's okay you don't know everything just yet. That's the point of learning. You're a student. You're not supposed to be an expert just yet. So put all of those feelings into context, and that will help you move forward. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on imposter syndrome. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. That's dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.